Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, back from holiday, and must say a great thank you to Miranda Green for hosting the last two episodes. In this episode, we'll be talking about Brexit Day. The UK is finally leaving the EU at 11pm on Friday. But what is actually going to change? Not a lot. What is the mood, the symbolism, and most importantly, what is Boris Johnson going to say next week about the UK's role in the world? Plus, we'll be discussing High Speed 2, the controversial railway that looks as if it's going to get the thumbs up from Mr Johnson's government, despite huge overspend and a lot of unhappiness among his colleagues. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Deputy Opinion Editor, Miranda Green, columnist, Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Correspondent, Jim Picard, and Infrastructure Correspondent, Jill Plimmer. Thank you very much for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also appreciate positive reviews. So, in case you hadn't realised, Friday was Brexit Day. By the time we listen to this, the UK will have left the EU at 11pm. It's a great symbolic moment for the country, but in change doesn't really mean that much. Nothing is going to change in the UK's trading relations, its economic relations, and the mood across the country is a little bit damp about the whole thing. So, George Parker, this moment has been 1,317 days in the making since the UK voted in that referendum in June 2016 to leave the EU. And for some people, this is a very happy day. For a lot of others, it's a very sad and depressing day. But the general mood is one of people just shrugging their shoulders generally. Yes, I think that's right. I think the government has deliberately tried to play down any sort of sense of triumphalism. I think that's correct. They did some opinion polling, which correctly deduced that wasn't the mood of the country at all. And a number of the Brexiteers have been striking very statesmanlike poses over the last few days, saying that it's not that sort of time. There was a small party in Number 10 Downing Street. So. I believe you're going to a party yourself, George. Aren't you? <laughs> I've been invited to dress as my favourite EU country, but sadly, Robert, there were no fancy dress costumes for Belgium in our local shop. But the party in Number 10 Downing Street, we were told, was um, going to be celebrated with sparkling English wine and roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, which is frankly a little bit on the naff side, if you don't mind me saying. But nevertheless, yes, I mean, the mood has been subdued and... I think it's partly because the nation's exhausted, plainly that's the case, but also I think there's a sense of trepidation on the part of the Brexiteers that they do now own this. Brexit is a turning point in the life of the country. Brexit has shone a spotlight on many of the problems that exist in the country, which the government is now determined to address and Boris Johnson's determined to address. The question is whether the Brexit that they have orchestrated and the kind of trade deal they hope to negotiate is necessarily the best platform from which to rebuild the country from there. Well, I'm very sorry about your costume, um, George, but 
on more prosaic matters, I thought there was an interesting interview with Michael Gove this week on this very point where he was asked what he feels about Brexit as being one of the kind of key architects. And he said one of the great benefits of this is that British politicians have nowhere to hide anymore and that things that have been blamed on Europe for many, many decades are now all very firmly in Westminster's lap, which was a very interesting thing for Michael Gove to say, considering all the claims he made during the referendum and the promises about this bright new future ahead. And you do have to wonder, we're about to enter these delightful trade talks, which we'll come on to in a moment, but whether that kind of comment might come back and bite those people. Well, I think he's being very honest about that. It is a fact, of course, that they own this. It's the project they wanted, Brexit, and it's exactly the kind of Brexit they've been clamouring for, going back to the Chequers Agreement, where Theresa May was trying to keep us aligned with the European Union. And Boris Johnson rejected that view. And it was interesting also to hear Michael Gove this week starting to be explicit, and he had a meeting with business people this week, about the fact that they will face new friction at the border. Not something you heard very often during the 2016 Vote Leave campaign, I have to say. But increasingly, we did an interview with Sajid Javid the other day, they are starting to be explicit about the fact for the first time that the price of having sovereignty and the right to diverge is higher costs for our manufacturers and our exporters. So Miranda Green, a lot of Remainers have accepted that Brexit's happening now. And of course, the key date for that was December the 12th when Boris Johnson won that big parliamentary majority. And really that ended the dream of a softer Brexit, a second referendum. And I think that was very much down to the fact, as George said, the country's totally exhausted by this debate that we've had for three and a half years now. What do you think happens next for people very much of the Remain persuasion? Because the Folks that I've spoken to in Parliament about this say, look, there will be a moment to talk about rejoining. It's not now. And if we start talking about that at this moment as we're leaving, we're just going to shoot ourselves in the foot. So really, we just need to go away, be quiet for a while, let this thing pan out and then start to look at the real trade-offs that may occur because of Brexit. Well, that sounds unusually sensible in my view from the the Romaniac side to say now is not the moment to have a fight about standing on a rejoin platform. I mean, there's been a little tiny bit of that, but it's really been sort of isolated voices. I suppose the prism through which we sense how the opposition starts to regroup at the moment is the Labour leadership campaign. And of course, you've already had Lisa Nandy, the kind of dark horse candidate, being very firmly in favour of freedom of movement and saying, we, the Labour Party, have to speak for the benefits of immigration. You've now seen Keir Starmer come out and say the same thing on freedom of movement. They're starting to talk about voting rights for EU citizens in the UK going forward. So these are small moments where they're trying to retain the Remainer mantle for those groups that stuck with the Labour Party in the general election. But of course, they also have to address the reality, which is going to be trying to find some sort of voice in the next 12 months because Parliament will not have the central role as the locus of dramatic moments where it looked as if Brexit might be derailed or some compromise would be found. So to actually try to interrogate government intentions when the government's strategy is to be quite obfuscatory about what these trade-offs that George has described might actually mean in practice for the British economy, it's going to be very, very tricky for them. Of course, there's also, on the immigration issue, a really difficult balancing act for the government as to where they come down on what they mean by letting the skilled people into the country but blocking the immigration of 
what they call unskilled workers, but who actually prop up, for example, the social care system. There's going to be quite a lot of material for the pro-European opposition to get their teeth into. Whether they can make much of it when the government has a majority and can do what it wants remains to be seen. And I think, as you said, that's very much about who is the next Labour leader because the Lib Dems are so small in Parliament now for the moment, they're not really part of the picture. But if you have someone like Keir Starmer, if he wins that contest, he's someone who would be pretty good at digging into the detail of trade deals, of immigration and those kind of trade-offs. And for the Remain cause, that's probably the best thing they can do for the immediate future while accepting we're outside the bloc, but trying to criticise and dig into the detail on this stuff. So if it does backfire or has negative effects, then they can do, well, look, we pointed this out. We warned you this thing was going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also if you listen to what the Labour leadership contenders are trying to do, they are aware that allowing the Brexit and anti-Brexit camps to become part of a kind of incipient culture war over the last year and a half or so has been a disaster for the Labour Party. So they're trying to shy away from that because they've got to try and tempt those working class voters in the seats they lost to Boris Johnson in December back again. Robert Shumji, when we look back over the past three and a half years, it's very clear that Brexit above everything else has been about identity, less so about economics and trading ties. And the whole thing has descended into a culture war with Remainers and Leavers being very angry at each other and attacking each other on every perceivable basis of intention, of character, of intellect. But one thing that struck me from today, Brexit Day, is there seems to be relatively little of that and that most Leavers on that side, the Zealots accepted, have just said, look, let's not rub Remainers' faces in it. Are they being genuine in that, do you think? Some of them are and some of them aren't. I think some of them do understand that this is a damaged country and that it's on their watch has got to be put back together again. Some of them understand that it's just classier politics not to be rubbing people's nose in here and some of them just can't help themselves. <laughs> I think some of them also quite enjoy being a little bit patronising about this and saying, you know, we won, we can be magnanimous now. So I think all of these factors are running together. But the truth is that it is in the interests of the government to have the Remain side not only accepting the reality of Brexit, about which they have no choice, but going to Miranda's point about reducing this now to an argument over specifics because, A, the details and specifics of trade policy are quite boring to most people and quite complicated. And so the more it's an argument about that, the less the public will tune into it. Secondly, they don't want this culture war fighting on, on anybody else's terms. If there comes a moment where they need to push identity politics back up to the fore, if things are going badly wrong for them, then they want to be in control of the volume, not anybody else. And so I think it's in their interest to hose it down as much as possible. And I think the key point in terms of the next year is that I think talking about rejoining is a ridiculous thing to do. I think it's incredibly damaging. And nobody who lives in this country would wish to see an early rejoin campaign succeeding because the country will be in the most terrible states for it to happen. This is a generational thing before one can really talk about it unless the country really goes to the dogs. And I think what they have to do is pick at the detail, as Miranda was saying, needle at it little by little, say, OK, on this particular point, if you do this, you damage the NHS. And if you do this, you damage social care. And if you do this, lots of jobs in this area will go. And I think that is the way they have to go at this. And it's very much in Boris Johnson's interest to dull that down. So I think it's good politics from his point of view to play it that way. Now, George, let's throw this forward to next week because, as we've said over and over again, nothing is changing tonight. Because of the standstill transition period, we are still effectively members of the EU. And there was actually a note, the FT report on, that went round diplomats that said, OK, the UK's outside the bloc, we don't have MEPs, you don't have commissioners, but just treat it as it is, really, because it's easier for everyone to do and we're still bound by all the laws. But on Monday, 
Boris Johnson is going to try and set out what Brexit actually means, because one of the big criticisms of Brexiters in this government has been is there's no vision, there's no idea about what this whole thing is about. Mm. And he's given this speech that's been touted by people in the government as a big moment, a big speech to deliver his vision. And is it going to deliver on that, do you think? Or is it just going to be the kind of classic, here's a few sound bites and we're going to diverge and it's all going to be great and we're going to have our cake and eat it? Well, it's hard to tell until we see it, of course. But as you say, it's been billed as, as this big moment where he sets out what global Britain means in practice. And we're going to hear a lot more about his idea of this Canada-style free trade agreement, what it means you know, in terms of the friction we were talking about earlier, also talking about what he hopes to achieve with the US trade deal. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about that in the coming weeks. Can they actually really get this rushed through by the summer, which is the timetable the Trump administration would like to work on? Or should they take a lot longer? I was speaking to Liam Fox this week, the former Trade Secretary, who said... We should take our time on this, make it a proper, comprehensive trade deal with the Americans, get services involved, don't rush it. So I think we'll hear a bit more about that. But I think the interesting thing is because we've got the budget coming up, of course, in March, which will be a defining moment of this government. Getting the trade deal with the EU right is absolutely integral to everything else this government wants to do in terms of the whole levelling up agenda and putting money into the north. And unless you get the trade deal right and have a smooth exit, it doesn't create huge new barriers to business. Where's the money going to come from? to help the North. I mean, this is a key moment and there's going to be a lot of tension between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister on this. Money is very tight on the current side. They're almost up against the headroom now. That means that they're having to go around Whitehall asking for people to offer up cuts of 5% to their budgets. They're going to be talking about tax rises to try and bring money in. It's going to be a very, very tight budget, I think. Trying to somehow connect the trade part of this narrative and the domestic part is what he's going to try and do in the speech. I do think also that this is a government that's actually loading costs onto businesses at this very moment. So it's done away with the promised corporation tax cut. It's proposed increases in the national minimum wage. They may be entirely justified and right, but they are going to be borne by businesses rather than by government. The Migration Advisory Committee report, which came out this week, talked about the importance of increasing wages because that's increasing the incomes of people. But these are all costs on businesses. They may be morally the right thing to do. It may cure the country of its sort of low productivity because it's hooked on a drug of cheap employment. But nonetheless, these are things that drive up costs in the short term. And this whole notion of a country, you know, a Singapore on Thames, is not the way the government is going. So I think it's going to find it doubly hard also from the business end of things. It's making life harder for businesses, both with friction that George was talking about, but also by piling costs onto them. Mm. And Miranda, finally, so we've said the real Brexit day is actually the end of this year, which is when you leave the institutions of the EU and that future relationship, however close or loose it is, is defined. But this question keeps coming up, will it get delayed again? Because obviously Brexit Day has been delayed, I think, three or four times now. And everybody in Boris Johnson's government said it won't be delayed. It's in law, I believe. They've written it down in the withdrawal agreement to say that we will exit the transition period on the 31st of December 2020. But can you imagine a situation when we get to October, we've done six months of these negotiations, and you've got the broad outlines of something, the key areas are covered. We just need that a bit more time, that couple few more months, the EU say, and we'll get there, we'll get this great deal, it'll keep the economy going. Can we just push it back a bit? In those circumstances, do you think Boris Johnson has the headroom and the ability to say, OK, fine, let's just delay it into 2021? Well, I'm really glad you asked me this because Robert and I have already disagreed about this this week because I think that this is a Prime Minister who gets to play by different rules. And as you've said, last year he was supposedly going to be dead in a ditch. If October the 31st. October the 31st. And here he is now, we're not out, you know, there was an extension. So I think that should it come to it, then they would find some way. However, 
the timetable is much tighter than that because you have to request an extension by the end of June. So it actually really speeds up the sense of urgency now over what can be achieved before the end of December and whether we will be actually facing yet another no-deal WTO terms cliff edge, which, of course, is a drama we've been through (laughs) so much already in the last 12 months. And Robert, please disagree. Okay, I disagree. Um, Mm. I think that this is a government with a big majority with four and a half years before it has to face the electorate again, which does not want to be in this transition period any longer than necessary and which believes in its own rhetoric of it's only when you're staring at the deadline you get anything done. And for the reason that Miranda indicated that the decision has to be taken in June, I do not believe they will decide in June to do this extension. So it would require the EU to change the rules so that it could do an extension at the last minute. And my instinct is that it's not going to happen. I think we're going on the end of this year. But realpolitik, doesn't that kick in if it's, you know, but, October, sorry, just to November? Just come back on this point, when yeah. we talk about a no-deal Brexit, if you are diverging on regulations, then all of the visible manifestations of a no-deal Brexit, like lorries at Dover, are going to happen anyway. So I think they might be ready to take the pain. And very briefly, I sort of hate to incede in this dispute, but I think I'd probably come down narrowly on the side of Robert. I think the EU will run down the clock. There's going to be a nasty bust-up in the summer about fish and financial services. We'll get into the autumn. But in the end, I think Boris Johnson will want anything, even if it's just a scrap of paper, say, here's the no-tariff, no-quota deal. We can build on it later on after the transition ends. And, of course, we know Boris Johnson has the great ability of painting defeat as triumph, and he may end up doing that again over the trade deal. High Speed 2 is the railway the Conservative Party loves to hate. It was originally a project proposed by the Labour government to increase capacity going up the west of England and eventually to the north. But it's a very expensive one. The cost has ballooned and have been countless reviews on whether this is the right thing for the country to do. Boris Johnson faces a difficult political conundrum over it because some of his party want it and another big part of his party don't want it. So when he became Prime Minister, we had another review and it looks as if that review is going to give it the green light. So Jill Plum, if you can just give us an overview of why this thing is so controversial and why we've had this review and the sort of things it might say. Sure. So the project has been running for 10 years, during which time it's risen in price from around $32 billion to something around $88 billion, although the National Audit Office said last week that it's actually impossible to estimate with certainty how much it will cost. Construction hasn't yet started, and HS2 Limited, the government-funded company that's delivering the project, is hoping to get the go-ahead within the next couple of months. But Bryce Johnson still needs to make a decision as to whether it's worthwhile. Because I guess the challenge they're facing is that when you look at the capacity arguments for High Speed 2, they're relatively straightforward. The UK needs more rail capacity and upgrading the existing railways is very difficult and will create much disruption and not give you the same gains. But on the other hand, the management mess up of this thing is absolutely spectacular when you look at the figures and the consistent reporting that you and Jim have done about how much this thing has just gone over budget, executive salaries, bad management, everything that taxpayers hate. Well, and even the capacity argument hasn't been straightforward. Two Lords reports have said that they think these aren't the most congested railways, that there isn't the issue on long distance lines and the money would be better spent on the northern routes, which are congested at all times. So, Jim Picard, when we look at the politics of this, the challenge facing Boris Johnson's government is that they are very focused on building things. Boris Johnson loves to build 
big projects. They also need to deliver on those new northern voters who voted Tory for the first time in December's general election. And they're trying to balance off these two things between delivering infrastructure projects but giving them something that is going to make them feel they made the right decision voting Conservative. Does HS2 do that? The problem with HS2 in political terms is that it doesn't deliver a link as far as Leeds and Manchester until 2040, even if it delivers on time which is 20 years away. And the time frame that the newly elected Tory MPs in the Red Wall are working on is much more short term, which is we need something achievable and realisable within five-year parliament so that these seats don't suddenly switch back from blue to red because Brexit's done. Therefore, the main reason they changed hands was because of Brexit, and that's out the window. They need some other reason to go back to voters and get re-elected. HS2, on the other hand, if Boris Johnson cancels it, it does send out potentially a massive signal that when Boris Johnson says he's the infrastructure guy and he's the guy who wants to help the North, is he really serious about it? Now, the price tag has wildly escalated out of control. And I remember when Jill got this original scoop about the price tag going up from 56 billion quid to 88 billion quid last summer, both of us were terrified that we'd messed up this story or missed a zero, put the decimal point in the wrong place because it seemed so phenomenal. Even since then, the Douglas Oakley report commissioned by the government has come back and said the price tag might now go up as far as 106 billion. But what the government does have going for itself is that because they've relaxed some of their fiscal rules in the budget in the spring, Santa Javid is going to say, well, look, we actually have an extra 100 billion pounds to spend over this parliament on capital projects. Only 22 billion pounds of that has so far been allocated. So there is about 78 billion pounds that they can put towards state-controlled infrastructure projects in this parliament. So even though a bit of that theoretically might end up being soaked up by HS2 overspends, there still is quite a large wadge of money and there is still a belief among the people pushing for the scheme, such as Boris Johnson and, of course, Andy Street and the West Midlands mayor, who think they can do both. Now, Joe, can you explain why the price tag has risen so dramatically from those original estimates to your story to where the Oakery Review is? Because transport projects or any big infrastructure projects in the UK always go over cost, but this is another level entirely. Well, one thing that the NAO report pointed to was that essentially the government did know earlier than this, as far back as 2016, that the price was going to be higher and it simply hadn't told us. Then there's some other reasons. They seem not to have estimated the cost of the land that they have to buy to make way for the route correctly. They seem to have underestimated the difficult ground conditions and various other things. And there's also cost if it doesn't go ahead, though. And there's been some reports saying that if the government did cancel it, there'd be £12 billion that had been sunk because, as you said, it hasn't been built yet, but a lot of preparatory work has already been done on it. Well, so far they've spent eight or £9 billion Quite a chunk of that has gone on land and, of course, they could recover some of that cost. And when you say it's sort of shovel-ready to begin in the next couple of months, what's the timetable now, given these delays and all these reviews about when it would start and when the various parts of it would be ready? Well, I don't think even that's clear, in fact. I don't think they have a plan for Easterners yet and how that would work, how they'd get the trains in, according to the NAO. This is the hub in London where the line would start and end? Exactly. They still haven't finalised the contracts with builders. I think the aim was to have work starting as soon as spring, but the NA warned that if work doesn't start by the end of March, the price is likely to go up again. And Jim, when we look, just going back to the politics of this for a moment here, within 
the cabinet. The key figure in this seems to be Sajid Javid. And as the FT reported this week, Mr Javid is now in favour of this. He's looked at all the same data and the things that Jill were talking about there and has decided that ultimately it's still better for it to go ahead than not, despite the case maybe being a little bit shaky. Yeah, I would take a slightly different approach, which is that the key person in all of this is Boris Johnson himself. You know, he is the Sun King now. People had their doubts about him. He managed to get this majority of 80. He is basically king of all he surveys, can do what he likes, His instincts, he has said, are in favour of this project. He's got Dominic Cummings whispering in his ear saying it's a disaster zone. This was the expression he used, I think, in a blog a while back. He's got his own transport czar, Andrew Gilligan, advising him not to do it. He's got his head of policy in number 10, I'm told as well. Minira Mirza is opposed. And yet in the shadow cabinet, does anyone really have the power to try and stop him, even if they were inclined to do so. It was a major signal that Sajid Javid is throwing his weight behind it. You know, there was this meeting with him and Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, yesterday. But I think both Shapps and Sajid Javid will have been looking at what does the Prime Minister want and let's tuck in behind the headwinds of the Prime Minister and his decision. And I think if you look at who are the senior Tory MPs who oppose this, there used to be a fair few in reasonably senior positions. Steve Baker was a minister at one time, David Liddington was opposed, the former Deputy Prime Minister. Andrea Leadsom is opposed because her constituency is in the path of HS2. But, you know, Andrea Leadsom, there are rumours about her being demoted or sacked in the imminent reshuffle. There aren't any sort of major cabinet voices who are vehemently opposed. There are people like Michael Gove who've let it be known that they are sceptical about the price tag. But, you know, who in their right mind wouldn't be sceptical about the price tag? It's still a Boris Johnson decision and all of the signals we've been getting for a little while are that he will probably go ahead with it. And if things do go wrong, he can still blame previous Tory administration or even, I don't know, blame Andrew Adonis, the Labour former Transport Secretary, for coming up with it in the first place. And Joe, when we look at this report, when it does come out eventually about the line, are there things they can do to tweak or change or to reduce the cost? Because there's been various reports they might change it because High Speed 2 originally was a very high spec line, very quick change, very frequent change. There's been some talk they might tweak that to reduce the cost. Is there much merit to that? One proposition that came out in the Okavy report is that they pause work on the second part of the railway for six months and reconsider what cuts could be made. Of course, Boris Johnson could just decide to go ahead with the first phase of the line to Birmingham and then focus on the northern powerhouse. One of the things in the audit report last week was that they'd only done sort of 5 to 10% of the initial design work on the second phase anyway. The other um, thing that Okavi suggested is that you could reduce the number of trains from 18 per hour to 14 per hour. But the problem with that is that, yes, you shave off some costs, but then the economic case for it also gets reduced. So that has its pros and cons. And there's also just the general idea that you could slow down some of the trains, but the slower it becomes, the less of a high-speed train it is, I guess. But if, Jill, if they were to cut back or not do the second leg, that would go against Mr Johnson's political messaging of talking about improving transport for the north because the first part, the London to Birmingham, is the kind of key trunk of HS2. But then really reaching those other places and giving them better transport within them and also to London seems to be a big part of the point of it. True, but I guess what he could do is prioritise the Northern Powerhouse project, which is an alternative rail project, which would work with HS2. 
all could possibly be done first in the north. And finally, when you put this in the context of all the other infrastructure stuff the government wants to do, if HS2 does go ahead, is that going to take up capacity away from other matters and other things they want to do? Because obviously there's roads, there's buses, there's Heathrow. All these things have been on the agenda for quite a long time. Well, it's hard to know because, again, that's sort of in Mr Johnson's hands. But so far, they've already cut back on electrification programmes, for example. I know there's a digital railways programme that they want to do. Who knows whether they'd cut back on them. This point I was making earlier is that there is going to be this extra money in the budget because of their loosening of the fiscal purse strings and therefore as long as the economy doesn't suddenly go into a downturn they do have room for manoeuvre in terms of paying for other projects and you mentioned Heathrow. Heathrow is of course being paid for almost entirely by the private sector unless you count the surface roads and stuff around it. Now just to throw this in both Jill and I have picked up from sources this week and we haven't had it confirmed by the government but it sounded quite fun. We both heard this rumour that they could split HS2 into three theoretically separate projects one of which would be Euston Regeneration, one of which would be Northern Regeneration, and one would be London to Birmingham. So instead of having a single £100 billion white elephant, you have three much smaller schemes and no one will notice. That's the, that's the genius plan that we heard. <laughs> this is a great way of renaming the same thing and it probably end up costing even more money at the end of it. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Miranda, Jim and Jill for joining us. In the meantime, if you'd like to see more FT journalism, then do check out our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. We also have something very exciting, which is a live episode of FT Politics. You can come to the FT's HQ back in house in London and watch and listen and ask us questions about British politics on February the 26th. You can find more details about that on the FT website. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.